0: This is IVP. This is The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press about how faith is changing culture in unexpected ways. I'm Nancy Wong-Yoon. I'm a sociologist, a pop culture expert, and a professor at Biola University.
1: New eyes that look at the world in new ways. New eyes make contact blue, green, and gray. No, as I realized, I never know when you realize feelings trapped inside of you. No eyes see the respect
0: you earn. I am here with my good friend G. Woo woo! Sidekick in the house. <laughs> we are going to be talking, G, about Minjin Lee. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Min Jin Lee is, ah, uh, she's she's goals. Right? I love, I
2: love, love, love her book. She it, that's a book where you're like, oh my god, this absolutely deserves a national book award and it's like good
0: thing yeah well yeah it was nominated and it should have won um because pachinko is kind of uh the best book i've read in a decade hashtag
2: i'm with (laughs) minjin and
0: and she's actually i can say this she's a friend
2: you are so lucky.
0: <laughs> she's, um, she, I mean, she's all the way in, the, in you know, in New York. Um, but she has just been a mentor to me, and and she's actually the whole reason I think I, we even have kind of the stellar group of people that I get to interview for my podcast this wow. season because she, um, I had queried my Twitter followers whether I should host a podcast, and she was like, I listen, oh and I dm gosh. her, and I said, "Mindy, will you be on my podcast, please?"
2: Oh. And she said, "Yes." She's supporting you in real and concrete
0: ways, yo. Yes, she's amazing. She's a recipient of fellowships in fiction from Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Study at Harvard, and her novel, Pachinko, which we already said how much we love. Uh, 2017, it was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. And it was a New York Times 10 Best Books of 2017. So she's just amazing in everything she does. And yet she is so helpful and reaches out to so many people, too, to spread her shine. She definitely walks the walk. She reaches out to young Asian-Americans and people of color. All of her talent is matched by her kind of character, right? Wow. So I cannot wait
2: to listen to this interview. Yes,
0: let's listen. I just reread both of your books uh, in preparation. (laughs) It it was such a breeze. It was such a breeze. So I love how so many characters um, in your books are people of faith or those who are grappling with faith. So I, I loved Free Food for Millionaires. And I was so taken by Casey Hahn. And this is your first book. And she doesn't think of herself as religious, but I was so struck by the fact that you had her read a chapter from the Bible every day and write down a verse. What inspired you to give her that that habit?
1: Oh, I wanted Casey to have that habit because I have that habit. And it's like a very strange thing that I do. I started doing it because when I switched from being a lawyer to a writer, I needed to have some sort of routine And then I read that Willa Cather had that routine before she started writing fiction. And I thought, huh, I've never read the Bible front to back. And I'm somebody who grew up in a church. And I thought, oh, well, maybe maybe I should just kind of like know more. Why not? And it doesn't really offend me. Or parts of it were, I thought, really dull. And I thought, what in the world would Willa Cather get out of reading a chapter a day? So I thought, I'll try it. How long could it take? 10 minutes, 15 minutes? So I did it. And now I think I must have read the Bible maybe six, seven times over and over again in a loop. And you couldn't get me to stop even if you paid me money. So I think it's a very cool thing that I do. I I like doing it. I tell people and people always freak out. And I always think that's funny too. Like, it's not like I'm saying I'm reading, I'm watching porn every day before I write fiction. Like that would seem less shocking (laughs) than if I said to my fairly agnostic, atheist community of artists that I read the Bible before I start writing fiction. Tell me about that process
0: of reading it right before you write. How does it, is there a synergy? What is that about?
1: Well, I read a chapter and then I read the commentaries below in the New International Version study Bible and I read the large print edition. And then I read it again. I read the actual text again. And then I ask myself what troubles me, what interests me, what speaks to me. And sometimes it'll be something like the battle strategies <laughs> of how, how the Babylonians were thinking or what the pharaoh was thinking. So here I am talking about military strategy. That doesn't seem at all about faith. Or I'll be thinking about pottery, Like, why do pottery shards matter in that text? So it kind of comes every day, but I love thinking about all these writers who felt inspired by a divine. That is really interesting to me because I feel like what I do is really connected to something that's bigger than me.
0: The themes in your books really, I think, reflect that, the divine. Um, For example, I love how Pastor Isak in Pachinko says that he wants Sinja, the woman he's about to marry, to believe not out of a fear of judgment, but out of an experience of God's love, so the divine, right? So tell me about this choice that you made to represent faith as
1: love and not as judgment. Oh, golly, that's so important that you asked that question. I think that you could almost, om- I don't like to be binary, but if you said you have to divide believers into two categories fear-based or love-based I'm of team love (laughs) and and love it can have awe and fear and wonder in Mm -hmm. the quality of love it's kind of like when you fall in love with somebody you're thinking that person makes me shiver that person makes me quake that's in that love, too, in romantic love, <laughs> when it's like, oh, I see the sight of this person it's so visually nourishing, and I feel changed, or why can't I speak in the presence of my beloved? All that happens. So whereas people think love means like puppy love, or isn't it adorable, or isn't it friendly, or everything's always nice. So I think that when you think about the word love, there should be a sense of awe and wonder and splendor and infinity. Like infinity is kind of impressive. <laughs> So I'm that camp. I think that is also really much more conducive to creativity rather than fear. So it's very selfish of me to say I think of God as love rather than God as fear and judgment and criticism.
0: So you mentioned earlier that their Christian influences are coming from growing up in the church. So what was that like?
1: I wasn't the most ideal church kid. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm the middle of three girls. So those kids that you see giggling in the church pew, that was me. And my older sister and I and my younger sister, we would pass notes and eat candy. We would cut church. We would go when we said where it's on the school. We weren't there. And I'm not proud of it or ashamed of it. I just feel like if you're really a church person, you understand that, that experience. My grandfather was a Presbyterian minister, and he was a very heroic person. So I always knew that there were Christian people who were good people. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. if you're a church person, a person who grew up in the church, you know there are jerks and hypocrites in the church, because if you're an honest person, you're like, well, She's nice, but he's awful, or he's really nice and she's really awful. So that's true. But I also had a sense of this kind of the history of the church in my own family. And because I knew that my grandfather was somebody who cared about the poor and he fought for the poor, that made me feel like, oh, well, he walked the walk. Did I think he was a perfect man? No, because he had personal problems too. But I think I try to judge people for the macro sense So that was a really good thing that I had that experience. But I I understand if you, like, I've I've met people who've been molested by priests. And if they tell me I think that people in the church are full of it, then I'm like, yeah, your experience is really different than mine. I'm not saying that you need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I can kind of understand because for me, my formative experience is that the people that I really cared about, who I respected, they were not hypocritical. And that was helpful.
0: So your, your grandfather, he was a minister. This was in, in South Korea? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was educated in the North because the history of 20th century Korean Christianity, the the primary seminary was in Pyongyang, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So before North Korea formed, there was a really important seminary in Pyongyang. And that's where almost all the... Civil rights activists, all the anti imperialist organizers really came from that church. So, the history of Korean Christianity and the history of civil rights and also anti colonialism really come from those leaders, those early church leaders. So, when I think of Christians, I think of very much like the history of civil rights in America with African Americans, where people felt empowered to fight against wrong things because they felt girded by God. And I do think there's something to be said about. When I see people of faith fighting for things, you always have to treat them a little differently because they're not thinking about cost-benefit analysis in a regular way because they care about something much, much bigger. So they're in some ways are more dangerous. Like, so when I think about a religious person, whatever your spiritual practice, I I always think about them in a slightly different way because they don't think about regular things. They don't make those same judgments based on regular things like security or money or status. It's much bigger. In in that sense, they're more powerful and they're a bit more irrational.
0: And where do you think that irrationality comes from?
1: I think a sense of permission of their their philosophy. I mean, people who are philosophically driven, they're different than people who are practically driven. I mean... I'm not a very, I mean, I can be a very pragmatic person, but if you think about what I've done to write books, it's really kind of insane. And I know that. I mean, I'm very aware <laughs> of how I work and it's not normal. How does that, what does that look like in your life? Well, I've had periods in my life where I was risked for not having health insurance or savings, or I could have alienated myself from people who make important decisions. Like I've done all those things which were very risky and they were very lonely and, and depressing and full of anxiety. I don't want that for people. I, I don't want to share suffering with a young person who looks at me hopefully thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit there, I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to take an acting class <laughs> and everything's going to work out. And I think that would be so irresponsible of me to say that. So very often I will talk about all the things that I didn't get because then I want them to go, can I do that? Can I live that way? Can I live without friends or without economic security? Like I've had someone say to me recently who I grew up with, she told me almost everything can be solved by money. This is a person I really respect and love, and she said this to me. And she said this to me at a time when I had a problem which possibly could be solved by money, but not necessarily. And I didn't have that money to solve that problem. And I remember thinking, I wonder what happened to her that she could be so unfeeling to say that to me. Like, And then I realized, oh, I would never say that, I think, because I know what it's like not to have money to solve a specific kind of problem. And, and then I thought, oh... All of her success has given this very smart person a kind of blindness. And that was really interesting because I never thought of this person as being somebody who could be blind in that way. So it's weird about how your life ends up. So sometimes suffering and vulnerability can give you sight. So, and I'm grateful for that sight, mostly. And sometimes when I'm suffering, I'm like, this really sucks. (laughs)
0: So what sustains you through those times of suffering?
1: I think it's because I do believe that there's meaning in what I'm going through. Maybe meaning that I don't understand today, but maybe maybe meaning that'll come out eventually. And I think if I didn't believe there was meaning in my suffering or in our collective suffering, I would have a harder time. So if you don't believe in that, then you might be right. I don't know. I wouldn't presume that I'm right and they're wrong about this theory. Does suffering have meaning? I'm of the camp that says suffering has some meaning. And perhaps a lesson. I hope there is a lesson. I'm always looking for the lesson. I'm like, can I learn this faster? Because I don't like suffering.
0: There's a lot of suffering in your books. I d- definitely feel like a kind of a moral thread where there is that kind of, you know, rationale for the suffering and certainly growth. Do you feel like, you know, you're trying to kind of tell a morality tale through your stories?
1: I am a moral novelist. I'm of a very old school line of thinking that in my novels, there are moral questions that I am trying to answer that are really important to me personally. Perhaps they could be important to you. As for suffering in my work, I think everybody is suffering. I interview so many people and I'm always surprised by how many attractive, successful people are privately suffering so much. They're in agony. And I'm going, wow, how could you be so attractive? (laughs) Like you have this surface appearance of all this perfection. And then I realize, oh my gosh, like an hour into the conversation, that person is profoundly suffering or they love somebody who is in agony, right? So even just that nexus alone can transfer a kind of suffering. So part of my job is to look at that suffering and to say, well, in terms of plot, there's a reason, and I'm going to provide that reason. And what I'm doing, this is what most 19th century novelists have done. A lot of the early 20th century novelists have done. I am not a postmodern novelist. I am definitely of the old school. I believe in moral novels. That's what I want to do. I don't know if everybody cares about that, but that's what I want to do. I won't write that many of them anyway just the way I work is so dumb or inefficient that I feel like if I wrote five books before I die, I'm really, I'm coming out ahead.
0: Well, I hope there's going to be many more, but I, I've read and and heard you talk about, yeah, that, that you work, I mean, that you scrapped an entire manuscript, I think when you were um, writing Pachinko.
1: I've scrapped several manuscripts and I'm glad I did. I'm really glad I did because they I wouldn't want to be associated with that. I'm very clear of, like, the work that I've produced, whether if it's a 800-word essay or a 1,000-word essay or a 6,000-word essay, like, I just did the intro for The Great Gatsby, and I spent way too much time on that. I mean, I spent three months. I think I spent maybe a $1,000 on books just to figure out what I wanted to say. Not smart. Really, really <laughs> not smart. <laughs> However... I feel like I have said what I'm going to say about what is considered one of the most important books that America has produced. And that gave me a kind of satisfaction that is consistent with the way I want to live my life.
0: Oh, that's so fascinating. So you are writing, this is an intro to The Great Gatsby you
1: mentioned? Yeah, so the Penguin Classics asked me to introduce The Great Gatsby. So, And I'll just tell you, I don't think I'm getting in trouble, but it was a $2,500 Project, I should have written fifteen hundred words over a weekend and moved on. <laughs> but rather, I spent three months, and I wrote six thousand words, and it had a hundred footnotes, and it is my statement on the Great Gatsby and how it should be read. And I'm very proud of what I did, but it was, in terms of how a person should work, really dumb really dumb. Like all my friends are going like, "What is your problem? What is your problem?" And I'm like, "I know what is my
0: problem." <laughs> but well, I think that's amazing because The Great Gatsby is something that high schoolers, you know, I think still read and to have your intro, like, you know, I mean just being an Asian American woman, I think it's for myself, like I I'm just so excited that you're going to be introducing something that feels so Americana. And Was that something that motivated you in terms of why you <laughs> invested so much time and effort into the project?
1: Yeah, I think it is what you just said. And it came out, and the, the hardcover is coming out actually, I think, this month. I think this month. I can't remember. I, the, the This other version of it came out a little earlier this year, but then the hardcover is going to come out. It's kind of like this weird reversal thing. But anyway, I did it because... It was my assertion that people like you and I have the right to read and right to speak on and to assert our interpretation of whatever you think we're supposed to know and the, and the great seminal texts. So I've been asked to do other books, but I chose this one in particular. I said yes to this project because I think as immigrants who have been so completely erased in popular culture, and I know you know what I'm saying, we must speak about how we're being changed and how we're changing it. So part of my willingness to engage in popular culture sometimes has everything to do with the fact that I want my students and my readers to know that I am looking at this and I am part of the audience. And that's my little resistance. And I feel like I can make an impact on that. There are a lot of things I can't do, but this I can do. So I, I did it and boy, I blew a lot of time.
0: Well, I think it's going to have such a huge impact. Um, so yeah, it's like you're doing it as a passion project in essence, sense, right? Rather than for the money.
1: Oh, no, it's not the money. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, I could have just done it an easier way. Job and walked away from it, and I wouldn't have done anything wrong. But I felt, yeah, and and you'll see. I'm happy to send you the copy of it. It's you'll see why it reflects. I'm, I'm I'm presuming, but I think you in particular would understand what I think because I wanted to talk about, let's say, not women but white women. It is a treatment of white women. It's not a treatment of immigrant women. It is not a treatment of women of color. It is not a treatment of working class women. So there's an aspect in which I define that, and I did it because I respect white women, not because I think that they're an other. I actually wanted to say, this is, uh, this is a description of you, of what this person thought of you. I also wrote about homosexuality in it because it's in the work. And I could prove it. So I wanted to talk about that. So I wanted to change the narrative because I, I don't agree with this idea that if you have a dead white man and he wrote a book, all those books should go away. I don't believe that. So many of the books that I read and love were written by dead white people. And in a way, it's my response to it. And, and it's about me qualifying my love and saying, I love this, but this not so much. But mm-hmm. let's keep talking about this.
0: Yeah, I think that's really actually important to. I mean, especially since these books are still read so widely, to be able to have an opinion and to be able to have a critique that is that is going to be what you've done in an intro that will be read by others. So that so that there could be more conversation, right, about these quote unquote canon texts that um, that yeah that I actually really did enjoy. Um, I I really love The Great Gatsby. That's probably one of the few high school Books that I recall and remember, and and still can like I still had feelings about right because as a young person, and I think that that's that speaks to um, yeah some sort of I think I don't know pathos that that it was able to deliver right even though. Even though, yeah, I I didn't necessarily relate to it personally in terms of experience, lived experience.
1: And I think it makes sense, actually, with The Great Gatsby and our discussion of the Bible. Very often people will say the Bible is a white book. And I think, really? I don't think Jesus was white. (laughs) So (laughs) no. (laughs) let's go back and look at the original source. (laughs) So for me, I kind of think I'm not interested in dividing the world into little sections in which I only have this little tiny bit of space to hang on to, I actually think, yeah, I can talk about Korea, but I could talk about Brazil too let's talk about all these things and really learn from each other rather than um, putting me in my little box
0: so when you read the Bible every day are you thinking are you thinking about it through the lens that okay these are these are Middle Eastern people right these are people who aren't white and how does that Um, influence the way that you read the text.
1: I love this idea that if this faith is true, that it can be something that is cross-cultural, transnational, beyond boundaries of geography and class and race. That is very powerful to think of it that way. So one of the things that I do because I grew up in the church is that wherever I am in the world on Sundays I will go to a church. So I could be in I could be in Hong Kong and I'll go to a church in Hong Kong and I'll look at how people on the ground are worshiping God according to my faith tradition. And I think, "Wow, here I am in Hong Kong. Here I am in Sydney, Australia. Here I am in Melbourne. Here I am in London." And somehow we're thinking that there, one, that there is a God, two, that there is this thing called a prayer. There are certain (laughs) things in these songs, and we're united by these things. And that gives me some consolation in a time in history when we're so profoundly fractured. Mm -hmm. So, and I think as a storyteller... I'm very interested in the idea that we can have things in common, like there are themes or anxieties or our wishes that can be common.
0: That's really lovely. I think that especially when I think in American Christianity, it feels so polarizing rather than something that what you just described, that it could actually be uniting um and certainly more meditative i think and that's what i got from from you talking about going to churches in different parts of the world that it's yeah that it's something consoling right rather than something polarizing i mean what do you think about like what what's the solution to what's going on here in the united states
1: well i think that we don't like to talk about our weaknesses so i think it's possible to be a christian and to be racist Like, I think it's possible that all of us are racist and sexist and classist and homophobic. And we have to figure out how much of that was cultural and how much of that is something that we have chosen, how much of that is something that we've rationalized. And then we have to be really thoughtful. And if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, and you don't have to be, I think truth is very important. It's one of the most important tenets of Christianity. Like, in the same way, I'm always surprised by people who have, like, this is my do or die issue as a Christian. And I think, well, how about lying? Lying is pretty up there. <laughs> how about greed? Nobody's talking about greed as, like, the do or die mm. issue. Cause I'm going, well, that's kind of really important <laughs> to Jesus. <laughs> so for me, like, I, I, I think about that all the time because if we can really focus on truth, and taking out greed. A lot of the other stuff kind of gets worked out.
0: Min Jin Lee is someone who walks the walk. She has been a mentor to me and many other Asian Americans, a true trailblazer and pillar of our community. As an Asian American woman author myself, I believe it's vital to publish diverse perspectives and to have Asian American voices represented on our bookshelves. That's why I'm thankful that my publisher, InterVarsity Press, is committed to publishing Asian American authors on topics such as Asian American identity, justice, the church, academia, and more. Beyond Colorblind, Redeeming Our Ethnic Journey by Sarah Shin is one of many titles I'd love to share with you. Have you ever heard someone say, I don't see color, or I don't even think of you as Asian? This is exactly what Sarah Shin addresses in her book. People say they are colorblind, but often refuse to acknowledge the causes and consequences of enduring racism. God created us purposefully with our racial and ethnic identities. It's time we all embrace them. In her book, Sarah Shin explores what it looks like when we experience internal transformation in our own ethnic journeys, and how God can propel us to be a reconciling witness to the world. To learn more about Beyond Colorblind by Sarah Shin, or to browse all of the books by Asian and Asian American authors from IVP, visit ivpresscom backslash AAPI authors. And as always, take advantage of the promo code DISRUPT and get 30% off plus free U.S. shipping. Add more Asian American voices to your bookshelf today. Visit ivypress.com backslash aapi authors. I, I think about um, your grandfather, the minister from from North Korea, and the fact that he is Korean American, and 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 the fact that you know that we're talking about in the United States. There's. Um, a different time, a different system, and how Christianity has intersected with that. And actually, I want to know more about um, I don't know if I've known this that, that Pyongyang is where kind of where the, the Christianity was happening. Because I think that we, we think of, I mean, in the United States, we think of communism and how communism is North Korea equals like, you know, the absence of God, right? So could you tell me more about that history?
1: So the, the creator of the North Korean state, Kim's grandfather, His mother was actually a Christian because she's from Pyongyang. So he has stated that part of the reason why when you think of the North Korean government of having all these rituals, of all these public mass rituals, that comes from being churched. So isn't that Mm. interesting? It's interesting to Mm -hmm. think of anybody who's a dictator understanding the way a church works. So if you understand churches, you understand organization. Mm -hmm. you understand public speaking you understand the emotional power of song so i'm not trying to create dictators out there but there are (laughs) but if you wanted to be a dictator a church is a good place to get your early (laughs) lessons so i find that interesting to me in the same way you can also be a great public servant if you came out of the church too so which is it right So my grandfather grew up in the South, but in order for him to get the education, he had to go to the Pyongyang Seminary. And then later on, when he came back, he ended up also going to Japan as a young man to get more theological education. And then he came back to Busan, where he set up his school for orphans, and he also had a church. I find that his migration was so important to him but it ended up being so important to me like i think it's really strange that my father was born in the north in the northern part of the country which became north korea and my mother was born in the south part of south korea and then somehow i grew up in seoul and then i came to the u.s so now i have north korea south korea the united states and then i ended up having to live in japan because my husband had his job there so I've had this weird migration, I think, and at no point was I consciously saying, yes, one day this will be very useful when I write pachinko. (laughs) (laughs) I did not have that level of insight or foresight. So when I work with my students and I wonder what you work with your students, how do you tell them to take the scraps of their lives and to find meaning? And again, do we find meaning in our suffering? Do we also find meaning in our joy? For me, I think what keeps me going is a belief that there is meaning.
0: In all these things.
1: In all these things. In the good things, too.
0: So your grandfather... So I'm also fascinated by the fact that he went to Japan to get theological training, because Mm -hmm. again, I think the stereotype is that Japan is also not a Christian nation, right? And that there are even seminaries there.
1: Yeah, Japan did have seminaries. They still have some seminaries. And And at the same time, there are many people in Japan who believe that Christianity is a cult, which I find fascinating. Like, I went to a church in Tokyo when I lived there, and I remember I was telling a friend of mine, a very polished, very famous person who is in the publishing world, and she said, well, Christianity is a cult, right? <laughs> like, And I thought, oh, Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, why not? I mean, I think that we have the word cult and we automatically associate it with something, you know, where you drink Kool-Aid and you die together. But, (laughs) and then you also have this idea that, oh, well, it is a sect of faith. It can be obsessive. Absolutely. And I think, again, why don't we approach Christianity not just the way we think of it as, but also how the world sees it? And why is that? Like, I, I think... If you care about Christianity at all, you have to look at Christianity honestly with all its flaws and say, yes, there were some bad priests, there were, and there are some good nuns, (laughs) and there's a long history of the church in every single country, and some missionaries were really God-awful, and some missionaries today are modern-day heroes. Like, but all of it, I think, honestly could maybe save Christianity.
0: By by taking a like a mirror to the actual faith, mm-hmm. right? And um yeah, and I think that people like transparency. I mean I think there are a lot of people of faith who are wanting to I guess there's a whole movement of deconstruction and wanting to, you know, talk about talk about faith more honestly. And um and I think there's still interest, right? I mean, there's a lot of interest in in being able to, I guess, approach something that is so ancient, and, but in a way that's um, more multifaceted. I think, I, I think it's only through, for me, it's only through this kind of honest conversation, like you're saying, that I can continue to have faith, right? Because it's, otherwise it feels like a lie.
1: I do think that if I could see more comprehensive care about the issues which polarize us, I would feel better. So like, let's say you believe that abortion is murder, what, whatever your faith is. And what, let's say whatever you believe, I'm not arguing about that. You believe that ab- abortion is murder and therefore you want to save children. I would like to see you care a lot about daycare then. A lot about giving support to mothers. A, a lot of acceptance towards mothers who are unwed. Providing housing. Like, I want to see all the ways that you care about that child and the child's life for the rest of his life. To me, that would make me believe that what you said is true. And if you believe that abortion is murder, then I want to understand your stance on the death penalty. I want to see your stance on pacifism. So I want you to tell me why certain murder is more important than other kinds of murder. And and I want to be able to have the discussion with you without either of us getting upset because then maybe we can create some policy changes in which we say we accept democracy because we do believe in democracy. I mean, that's part of the tenet of living in America. We don't live in a theocratic state. So, and all these kinds of discussions would be helpful if the majority of Christians were willing to speak up and say, you know, we have a visible and vocal minority who have sort of hijacked discourse. And I'm interested in the majority also participating in the discourse too.
0: Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I mean, I feel like I'm always lamenting that we don't have that enough. And certainly I think... Um, The dissemination of information is problematic, right, that people are are listening to a few, but not thinking about like exactly what you said, like thinking about it holistically, thinking about life holistically and thinking about policy. I don't it's like policy is only enacted one way versus and it's also, again, so polarized politically rather than morally because, you know, like everything that you said about caring about the whole child, the whole life, I mean, that starts to, quote unquote, dangerously, you know, go into, you know, certain political parties, territory that's not associated with, let's say, conservative Christianity, right? Versus thinking about, okay, what is what is the human policy that we need to make that is, um, that is more adherent to our morals rather than, you know, this kind of like certain political parties that are associated with certain, you know, christianity
1: yeah and i think that if we say we are christians if we say we are people of faith then how do we treat each other because i think we are insufficiently gentle and i think that we are not listening very carefully and we're not really thinking about the love that we have for each other rather than winning There's so much about winning right now in our culture rather than about the well-being of my neighbor. And that troubles me a great deal because then I think, no, that's not Christianity. That's not, and it's not textually based. And at this point, I can give you chapter and verse (laughs) in which I can argue my case. So there's a part of me that just feels like, okay, well, that's fine. I I understand you feel that way. But let's look at the whole book. What does the book say? It's funny because I don't talk about Christianity very much. I think it's, I don't think of it as something that I do professionally. But now and then I do talk about it because I'm not ashamed of my faith. And it's something that has become more and more important as I get older in terms of my moral philosophical underpinnings and how I get carried through the work that i do
0: i love that man that's um so inspirational yeah cuz i feel like you know i feel like i i talk about faith and i think about faith but sometimes i just get so caught up in again the kind of politics of it all and and grappling with the the um the kind of moral dilemmas of of how to live faith well and not be judged because there is so much judgment right of christianity and and I think that to kind of peel away, and I think that's the point of this podcast to peel away, like how how does faith lived out in culture look like, right? How can it be? How can it be a positive force? That's totally like, actually beyond you know the kind of superficial but also very realistic kind of critiques of how it's, you know, been kind of lived out in, in ways that aren't moral, but, um, but to keep on, you know, to keep, to keep holding on to, I think the, the essence of it is, is really a challenging.
1: I also have so many allies who aren't Christian, who are doing the work that I think is so beautiful in the world. Yes. And that gives me hope too. And I love this idea of grace of unmerited favor on everybody. It's not just for the select. (laughs) And that gives me hope that maybe we'll make it. I also think it's really important that we as the grownups in the room have hope because our kids need to see it. I think about that a lot. Like, what is my son thinking? What are my students thinking? What are my nieces and nephews thinking about the world? And I can't, be overwhelmed by the sense of despair that I have about the environment or about political systems or about democracy or mass incarceration, the incredible inequity in terms of distribution of resources. Like, I can look at all that going like, whoa. <laughs> and I think, well, <laughs> how do I encourage the next generation to keep, keep, really, really keep at it? Because it's not that we don't have the intelligence or the data or the knowledge so many of those things we actually have, but what, I, what I'm really worried about most is apathy and despair.
0: Yeah, that's something I think that faith can be the solution for, right? To have that hope and something that you can't see, because if we're only going by what we can see, it is really depressing. Um, and I think that having faith in something, in something perfect and beautiful and the idea that we can work towards that goal is um is a is is sustaining I think
1: and this is gonna sound very old school but what I what people really need to make big changes in their lives is to feel loved to feel profoundly loved and that can come I believe from faith so it's not just kind of like a you know balling up your fists and having a kind of resolve that's nice too but you get tired of that (laughs) But I think what you really, really need is to feel a deep sense of love and acceptance. And to me, that is really what's going to make young people and old people and middle-aged people enact positive change.
0: How have you experienced that in your own life?
1: I grew up without a lot of things. And yet somehow I felt very buoyant. <laughs> and I think I felt that sense of buoyancy because for reasons that are not really clear to me even when I was very little and awkward and bullied I really felt like I was a child of God. I still do. Like I still feel this sense that I got backup. <laughs> like maybe I don't have a lot in my bank account but I got backup. And I think <laughs> it, that sense of I know the most powerful force in the world. So, okay, bring it. I'm going to be okay. And, and that's, I don't know. I think when you're the little guy, that's really one of the appeals of faith is that you know you have nothing else. Like you have to humbly rely on God because you don't have, let's say, connections or money or status or all these other things. And even as, as I have those things now, I still think it's nothing compared to feeling that you're a loved and accepted child of God. And yeah, I still have that. I feel that. I really feel that even in the worst moments. Man, I am getting all teary. <laughs> I'm
0: like, I'm like, you're preaching to me. You are, you are encouraging me right now because okay. I need to hear that. You know, that's a word right there because I need to hear that as well. Because I, I too, you know, I come from a childhood of a lot of trauma, and I think that, yeah, it is because of that love. Once I heard about that love, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in a in a church family, and so once I heard about this love, it was like. I just wanted it. I wanted it, you know, and and I did everything I could to find it, because when things go wrong and there's no explanation, there's no solution, there's nothing you can do. What else can you rely on? Right. It it could be completely hopeless otherwise. So yeah, thank you. I wanted to also ask you, um, is there something that you are watching, listening, reading that you would recommend to people who, you know, want to kind of be sustained. Be—I mean, the podcast is called the Disruptors, but really, disrupting culture through faith. Uh, what are you? What do you recommend to our listeners?
1: Someone recently asked about K drama, and I thought that people might like a show called My Mister. Have you seen that? I haven't. Oh, it's—I think it's on Netflix. It's called My oh. Mister. I think it came out a couple of years ago, and it's probably the most not Squid Games. <laughs> <laughs> K drama. I enjoyed Squid Games. I really did. And at the same time, it shares something with Squid Games because it's really about poverty and about how we handle it and what it means to be changed by kindness. Kindness. And it's definitely in there. So that's a K drama that I could recommend without compunction.
2: Nancy, what a phenomenal interview. I didn't know that she was a Christian, let alone, like, reading the Bible every day. Like, it's like
0: Bible reading goals, right? Yes. And she reads the Bible with such, I think, a creative eye. Yes. I don't think I ever read the Bible thinking, I want to know the battle strategies (laughs) of of folks, you know, throughout the ages.
2: And just... That idea that, you know, because you and I both write kind of for a living as well. I mean, we talk about very different things than her. But this idea of divine creativity, you know, that that God inspired all these different writers in the Bible. I was so moved by that part of the interview. When I read her books,
0: I mean, there's obviously Christian characters in her book. Yeah, I love
2: Isak in (laughs) Pachinko. Actually, you're the one who recommended Pachinko to me. And I devoured it my My husband devoured it. I forced all my friends to read it.
0: (laughs) Yes, it feel actually the, the kind of tracing of that family felt very biblical. And just
2: listening to the interview just made me think, well, her characters are so deep in a way that I didn't know before. It comes from her own depth of thought and her own relationship with God and just reading the Bible every day. It was so moving to me.
0: Yeah, just there's so many surprises and also just inspiration drawn from yeah, her creativity and her deep faith.
1: Blonde, we remix our colors that we cover pop songs in a bottle, how we battle all the barriers, right? Some drink, some color their hair every night, some try to stand out, some try to act. White found music, but I've never been the
0: stereotype. New eyes break old lies,
1: new skin needs new
0: wine. Thank you for listening to The Disruptors. The Disruptors is hosted by me, Nancy Wong-Yoon. You can follow me at Nancy W-Y-U-E-N. Our theme song is New Eyes by Jason Chu. Our executive producers are Helen Lee and Andrew Bronson. Produced by Richard Clark, Cray Allred, and Myla Kim.